ASN Kidney Week 2019 in Washington, D.C. featured presentation of high-impact clinical trials, which presented new insights into many areas of nephrology. In this episode of the ASN Kidney Week 2019 podcast, Dr. Pascal Lane and Dr. Kelly Heinemann discuss these trials and share their thoughts. Hi, I'm Pascal Lane, and I have the privilege of chairing media and communications for the American Society of Nephrology. As part of that yesterday, I got to help run the press conference for today's late-breaking clinical abstracts at ASN's Kidney Week. Um, I was accompanied by Kelly Heineman, another member of my committee, and we got to listen to several very interesting clinical trials. So first we heard from Dr. Roven from Ohio State University on the Nobility trial. This is a phase two randomized control study of obotuzumab with um, mycophenolate, mofetil, and corticosteroids in proliferative lupus nephritis. This was um, a trial that included patients with active class three or four lupus nephritis who received standard of care um, mycophenolate and steroids, and then they were randomized to either the OB or the placebo group and followed for 142 weeks. And so they presented their data from the 76, uh, up to 76 weeks, and their primary endpoint was complete renal response at week 52. Pascal, can you tell us a bit about what a complete renal response is? Well, unlike many trials where they just look for an improvement in estimated glomerular filtration rate or a reduction in proteinuria, they actually looked at very strict changes and true normalization of estimated GFR, negative protein and microalbuminuria in the urine. Um, their primary endpoint of complete renal response also required a complete resolution of microscopic hematuria. So this is a much stricter criteria than many lupus trials have required. Um, and it was interesting because they did achieve a difference in this, uh, but when you, they widened their criteria to include some less complete renal responses, it looks like they have a very robust drug here. Yeah, what I thought was interesting is this drug was uh, glycoengineered, so it has a longer half-life, and it was not at all dependent on complement, which we know is altered in, in lupus. They found a lot of um, really good outcomes on top of this. Things like when they looked at the serology, C3, C4, and C and complement were lower than placebo. Double-stranded DNA was also lower than placebo. And I think importantly, they found similar adverse events between the placebo and treatment group at, six, at 76 weeks. Yes, it looks like a very promising drug. Um, now, one of the things they did talk about in introducing it was it seems to have more complete B-cell suppression than rituximab, which is currently used in patients like this clinically. Um, obviously, we can't say anything about if this drug is better than rituximab since there was no head-to-head -head comparison, but it'll be interesting to see how it all works out in the future. Yeah, so this was an exploratory study, and um, because of their positive findings, we'll be moving forward with a global phase three trial in 2020. Yes, lots more to look forward to here. So second, we heard from Dr. McCausland from Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, and this is the Paragon um, HF trial. 
This is the effect of angiotensin naprilosin inhibition on renal outcomes in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And so this is a combined angiotensin receptor blocker with um, a, an inhibitor that prevents the degradation of atrial natriuretic peptides with the idea that this will promote naturesis, diuresis, and potentially um, vasodilation. And so in this randomized double-blind parallel group active control event-driven trial, there were over 7,000 patients originally, originally enrolled. And then um, after a run-in period, greater than 4,700 of them were randomized to either um, receive um, valsartan or secubitril plus valsartan. And so this key exclusion criteria included a baseline EGFR less than 30 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. And the pre-specified renal outcome, a key secondary endpoint, was the first time to occurrence of either a greater than or equal to 50% reduction in EGFR relative to baseline, attainment of end-stage renal disease, or renal death. Well, once again, it was interesting to see that the combination of these two in the chronic renal failure population, um, but while both groups continued to lose estimated GFR at a fairly substantial rate, it was lessened by the combination of agents. Um, they also did not have a lot of complications in this group, like hyperkalemia, um, so it looks promising on that end as well. So it seems like inhibiting um, some of these other pathways in heart failure may help preserve kidney function. Yes, they found an early and sustained attenuation decline in GFR of about 0.6 mils per minute per year. All right, well, shall we move on to the next one? This is the one on the CALM study, spelled K-A-L-M. So this was a study presented by Dr. Fishbane from Norwell Health in New York, and this was the efficiency and safety of diphelicophine in patients undergoing hemodialysis with pruritus, and this is a result of a phase three randomized control study. So this um, study, patients with moderate to severe CKD undergoing hemodialysis were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive an IV bolus of the drug, or placebo, three times post-dialysis. And I thought that was interesting. Because this drug is actually removed by dialysis, um, it's important that it's given after so that it can stay in the system until the patient receives their next dialysis treatment. This is a kappa opioid agonist, which may sound um, a little interesting. However, um, Dr. Fishbane explained that this is a peripherally restricted agonist. It has no sort of euphoria or no um, brain um, effects. And so this is a really interesting approach to treat chronic itching um, in this patient population. Well, it's been noted that about 60% of the end-stage population on chronic hemodialysis complains of significant itch itching that impacts quality of life. Um, and in 48% of patients, it's described as quite severe. This is the first anti-itching drug in uremia that has shown any positive response that people could demonstrate. Um, I know the paper's getting ready to come out about this trial in New England Journal, and uh, it looks very promising. Yeah, from the results he presented from the surveys they submitted, there was at least a 35% increase in quality of life for these patients. 
And so this does seem very promising. And there were a few adverse events that were higher in the group, things like diarrhea, dizziness, and vomiting, but these were very transient and um, considered not so significant. And even though we don't get the classic opioid euphoria, there's something that'll make you smile about not itching all over. Absolutely. Okay, so the next abstract we got to uh, talk about was uh, the Athena trial. So this was presented by Dr. Kravedi from Mount Sinai, and this trial was mycophenolate mofetil versus asothioprine in kidney transplant recipients on steroid-free, low-dose cyclosporin immunosuppression. So as Dr. Um, Lane said, the Athena trial. This is a randomized, prospective, multi-center trial comparing the effects of chronic allograft nephropathy prevention of mycophenolate mofetil versus AZA as the sole immunosuppressant for kidney transplant recipients. All patients were induced with low-dose um, immunosuppression and were steroid-free. So it was interesting to me, he presented first the history from the 90s of when the switch went from AZA to MMF. And so in, back in that time, the, um, that car, save, the savings associated with that was over a, million, a billion dollars a year. I, li I live through the era that he was talking about when we made the switch over from azathioprine to mycophenolate. And the initial study suggested that mycophenolate was far better at preventing acute rejection than um, the azathioprine was. However, we were using a different cyclosporin preparation. Uh, there's a more bioavailable microemulsion that since has replaced that. Um, and now most centers aren't even using cyclosporin at all. So the question is, is there still a benefit to mycophenolate that justifies its incredibly higher cost over the azathioprine? If it's really as effective at preventing acute and chronic rejection, as they thought back in the early 90s, then yes, it would be worth every penny. But if it's not, and we don't know that it is, then um, we need to figure that out. So in this study, they looked at about primary endpoint was chronic rejection at three years, and there was no significant differences between the MMF or AZA group. Yeah, it's very exciting. Over the years, we've had to switch uh, back to azathioprine in selected patients because MMF does uh, bring with it a significant incidence of uh, GI side effects, especially chronic diarrhea. Um, so we, we know we can get away with using azathioprine at least part of the time. Now the question that still remains is they were looking at the microemulsion cyclosporin plus azathioprine or MMF rather than tacrolimus, which is what I believe most centers in the U.S. use now as their primary calcineurin inhibitor. So um, we may need to look at that combination as well before we all make the switch, but there are substantial savings to the program if we can um, go back to that. Yeah, they predict it's at least tenfold cheaper and would have real significant financial savings. Okay, and the final abstract we got to hear uh, was looking at the effects of vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acid supplementation on kidney function and damage in type 2 diabetes. And this was presented by Dr. DeBoer 
from Division of Nephrology at the University of Washington. This was a randomized clinical trial of over 1,300 adults with type 2 diabetes to test whether supplementation with vitamin D3 or omega-3 fatty acids for five years prevents the development or progression of CKD. This was an ancillary study to the vitamin D and omega-3 trial called VITAL. Some baseline characteristics of this cohort included a mean age of 67.6 years, 48, or 46% of participants were women, and 31% were racially or ethnic minorities. Baseline EGFR in this study was 85.8 mils per minute per meter, uh, 1.73 meters squared. Well, once again, we've given vitamin D and fish oil to people, and it doesn't seem to have done anything yeah. beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, there for a while, it seemed like vitamin D was going to cure everything in the world, including old age and death. And when we've taken it to real world situations, uh, it doesn't seem to do that much. Uh, the other thing with fish oil is this is something that's come out of population-based studies where there are groups that eat a lot of fish, and it may be that eating a lot of fish instead of eating other sources of protein may be more important than just the exposure to the alpha, um, to the omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah, it was, I guess, somewhat disappointing that um, both placebos and vitamin D and also the omega-3 groups all still had a significant um, decline in EGFR over this five-year period. So how do you um, convince your patients that it's not worth their money to, to invest in these supplements? Well, I, I think we have to have data like these to say, yes, I know you've heard these things are, are great, um, and they're probably not going to hurt you, but um, you know, it doesn't look like they're going to fix this particular problem. Now, taking vitamin D may be very good for your bones. It, you know, some level, especially for women in my age group, um, but uh, it probably isn't going to fix your chronic kidney disease. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.